Betches Media presents. I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Uh, my party is going bat crazy. Ah! You're the pop. It's alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, and welcome back to the Betches Sup Podcast. I'm Sammy Fishbein. I'm Brian Russell Smith. And today we are joined by someone who is truly a dream guest for us. She is a legend of media, famed author, editor, president, and CEO of Tina Brown Live Media, and the founder of the Women in the World Summit, Tina Brown. Hello. 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 <laughs> Good to be here. So It really is so great to have you. Mm. I have been a huge fan for honestly decades and well thank you so much it's already worth being here because you gave me those tips about massaging my vocal cords yeah. and stuff i hope i sound <laughs> suitably throaty now well because i know you have you have your podcast now too so TV i do with tina brown so we want to make sure you sound as good as possible thank you it's such fun <laughs> doing podcasts it mm-hmm. is without you, having to be filmed yeah and yeah. you can have like all your notes out and no one knows how prepared or unprepared you I'm are. I'm trying to figure out how to turn my coat closet into a little podcast studio <laughs> <laughs> then I would never have to go out the house yeah oh I'm all with you on that I wish I could turn my apartment into, <laughs> into <laughs> my whole office and studio okay so we want to talk about just to start you wrote an op-ed this weekend in the New York Times about women saving the world and you were speaking about how what is typically regarded as feminine traits um, are actually showing themselves as being really excellent traits for leadership, most notably displayed by Jacinda Ardern and how she handled the Christchurch massacre um, a few weeks ago. So could you tell us a little bit about what inspired that op-ed? Well, I think what really inspired it was, first of all, we've seen now another sort of round two of sort of masculine mayhem from kind of Me Too fool out. Suddenly there was a whole new rash of stories, you know, R. Kelly, uh, the Times wrote about a famous philanthropist, you know, known mm-hmm. Michael Steinhardt, that was the founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, for goodness sake. All of these people now also falling from these uh, lack of impulse control. Robert Kraft, as we know, who went to the uh, massage parlor, you know, in the strip yeah. mall in, in Florida with sexually trafficked women, all of this stuff. So on the one hand, we have that. On the oh. other hand, you have to look at Nancy Pelosi, who is like this incredible mother hen, you know, in, in you know, with the house. I mean, she mm-hmm. corrals her angry caucus, you know, with these cooling words where she basically says, now, 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 like, let's just not get over emotional here. Let us just calm down. Let us not be like Trump, you know, in the post Mueller furies. Uh, and then Jacinda Ardern, the PM of New Zealand, who who everybody just thought was, you know, oh, she's so famous because she had a baby in office, right? Mm-hmm. No, when the Christchurch massacre happened, she did this extraordinarily instinctively compassionate thing by putting on a hijab and saying you know, to, to stand in solidarity with the Muslims. And now that 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 image of her in the Muslim scarf has been uh, uh, taken up by the Arab world and is being projected on on you know on uh, Islamic monuments with the the slogan peace over the top. Mm-hmm. So what you're really seeing is is that women, if they're allowed to lead in different ways, not in that old fashioned kind of alpha male way, can actually be very very effective and maybe really what the world needs now. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines. Um, you wrote, it's Nancy Pelosi, mother of five, grandmother of nine, who knows how to make the tangerine toddler in the White House eat his spinach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's true. She's just brilliant at it, yeah. right? I mean, she's incredible. And it, you saw, I mean, look at how Gail King soothed, you know, mm-hmm. R. Kelly, uh, you know, when he went completely off a tree. Well, it's like both of them, you know, there was that meeting in the uh, Oval Office with, uh, with Mike Pence and Donald Trump and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi was just 
you know, the cool, calm. She's the cool, calm one. Absolutely. And and, I mean, I go on to really say that actually many of the skills that used to make people dismiss women, mothering, caregiver, you know, uh, sort of purveyor of the family wisdom, those things were always considered sort of lesser traits mm-hmm. while, you know, the the big macho breadwinner went off and like, you know, th- waved his axe around and, and, and brought home the bacon. Okay, we, we all very much admire the men who take on these burdens, but these unpaid burdens also give women very particular skills. And we should stop thinking of them as lesser skills and start realizing how effective they are when they're brought to power. And let's embrace them and develop them. You know, when Hillary Clinton first ran in 2008, she spent the whole of her campaign talking about being this commander in chief. And I always felt, why? Why don't you embrace these kind of skills that Mm -hmm. you have as something different? Well, maybe America wasn't ready for it then, but maybe they will be in 2020 after, you know, four years of of the tangerine toddler. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so. Truly. Um, So one of the things we wanted to ask you was about the Me Too movement and if you thought that there would be a backlash to it. And I think even just outside of sort of that whole sexual harassment issue, what about the fact that do you think that men will react with, will will they go along with that, with the world just sort of seeing these more gentle traits as being necessary for leadership? Or do you think that they're going to try to counter that again with more strength. Well, I think there's a, there are a lot of men now who truly have been made to see things in different ways. I mean, I come upon men all the time now who say to me, I, I'm for it. You know, I, I realized that we were getting a free pass on stuff that we never thought about before. So there's a lot of men actually who are rethinking their own sort of commitment to that old macho style. And then there are, of course, many who are very threatened by it and feel angry about it and feel particularly aggressive about it. And you see them with very vile comments all over the social media. You see it in the rise of strong men as leaders, as a kind of reaction for the men who feel threatened and left behind. I think if women play it right, it it won't uh, become a backlash. I'm a bit uneasy when there is a lot of sort of hatred directed at, for instance, Joe Biden now for his... Mm -hmm. Uh, handsiness as it were and okay I'm sure what he, he wouldn't do it as much now and won't but at the same time generationally you know it was a different style then and no one has said he's a predator I mean the fact is that you know a, a warm alpha guy of a certain era is probably going to do that kind of stuff he's going to say you know wow you look gorgeous today and all these things that men were used to be allowed to say the fact that they're not allowed to say them now shouldn't mean that they become sort of uh, villainized. I, I think that would be unfortunate and sad, actually. Right. Do you? I I feel like there's this whole sort of middle where they ju- where men or just people will justify that as it's just kind of how they do things or how they mm-hmm. did things, and they don't they don't look at it as wrong. And well, they it, should look at it wrong now. It's changed, and, right. and the fact is that it was probably wrong then. But yeah. there is also such a thing as as cultural evolution as well. You right. know? And I think we've got to allow an evolution to be made while at the same time not excusing the wrong kind of hands in this, which, you know, is also rampant and it's got to stop. Right. Do you think that America is ready to elect someone who's not an old straight white man? <laughs> <laughs> I think America is more than ready. Look how many women went to the polls, you know, uh, for other women who have got this extraordinary number now in, in Congress. I mean, women are winning right now. They're winning their races. Mm making the point without having to that, of course, America's ready. They're electing a lot of women right now. 
Um, the Senate is still uh, a kind of back, sort of terribly retrograde. I mean, as we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings, which were insane. Yes. You know, all of those white old men being in they had to rent a woman to be the kind of yeah, process. I know I, that was that was just that. pitiful yeah and then they uh, were all the ones that were like screaming and yelling yeah, they were the ones exactly mm-hmm. right I mean Kavanaugh was the one and this is the exact example of what I mean about women behaving I mean it was women such as Klobuchar and Kamala Harris and so on in that hearing who were the so- sound smart voices mm-hmm. and it was the hysterical Kavanaugh mm-hmm. that, that was behaving like the you know the over emotional one the terrible tag that women right. get Right, but somehow they get excused because, and some part of me thinks that the reason they get excused is because they're the ones who are allowed to do the excusing because they're the ones who are in the higher level position. Of course. Um, So just because you just mentioned these two names, Klobuchar and Kamala, do you have any any thoughts on who you think is the strongest candidate for 2020? Well, it's it's beginning to evolve. I mean, I I really feel I would like to, uh, Bernie Sanders now to get out of the way. I, I, I'm I'm sad for Elizabeth Warren, who mm-hmm. I think, whose time on that on that particular sort of uh, left stance is now really, and he's really stepped on her and he's rained on her parade. There's no doubt about it, and I think that's a, a huge pity. I think he's bigfooted her, and I think it's wrong. And he had his time, and it's gone. Um, much though I like Joe Biden personally, I think that America doesn't look back. You know, yeah. we, we it's never been a country I've always struck, you know, as, a, as an English-born person, I've always noticed just America doesn't go backwards ever. It would rather go forward into a mistake than it would go backwards into the past. Doesn't like the past, and I think that Biden will feel like the past, really not so much for some of the reasons we're hearing right now, but because actually he's so pre-digital. You know, it's like the, the you cannot be the kind of leader now who's like big statesman talking to big statesman things going back to kind of uh, the sort of imagery of that kind of moment when older white guys were in charge of everything it's changing and I think we need a leader who acknowledges that I do like Kamala very much I think she is very very strong and very very smart and has some experience and some practicality and a a great uh, persona to her um, kind of wish Stacey Abrams was running because I think she's magnificent mm-hmm. and uh, just, I mean, I love it. She's both a fighter and a smart, smart woman. Uh, you know, she nearly turned Georgia blue. I think she's phenomenal. Love to feel that she might sort of come out of the woodwork. I do like Pete Buttigieg. I think mm-hmm. that he is most interesting. Mm-hmm. I like the fact he's a vet, which I think is a fantastic uh, sort of resume aspect, which will be play very well against Trump. Mm-hmm. Yes. Beto, I feel, is wildly sort of overpromoted right yeah. now, and I have to say that there, I did feel like a sort of furious feminist a bit because I mean his sort of comments about I was born to it and having absolutely no sort of accomplishments to his name. I just don't know women yeah. who would also, get away with that. He was also born into a decent amount of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly right. When you have a really rich wife who yeah. also is prepared to kind of do all the domestic stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty old old, right. old prototype. And I, I feel that Buttigieg is much more of a modern man mm-hmm. than, than Beto, actually. I, I agree with you. Um, just speaking to what you were saying about sort of that old guard of, of Biden and Bernie, I also think that that is dangerous because we don't live in a world where the leaders, it's its not really okay for them to not understand the importance of cybersecurity and how social media works. I and so agree. Propaganda and how and news also, and, and also, by the way, all of this relearning of the cultural mores that we just were talking about as well, it's like enough. Let's have a guy who, who was sort of 
or a woman who kind of gets all that without having to keep on apologizing for it. You know, yeah. I mean, because there's just a different way of being now that is modern. Right. And I think we want to move America in that direction rather than have someone who has to keep saying, well, I know, but in my day it was different or whatever. Yeah. It's just, it's, there's no time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's there's no time. There's 10 years yeah. left of the planet. Like, well, that's exactly yeah. 10 right. years. Mayor, Mayor Pete's one of his big, like, talking points is that he'll be the same age as President Trump in 2054. So he's like looking towards the future. Right. He so he's in, he's in, he, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I thought that was the most powerful mm-hmm. argument for a young man, yeah. actually, was a woman, because mm-hmm. it says, I'm invested in this. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to be around when there's no planet left to enjoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's important. So let's um, switch gears a little bit. So you pretty much just to your career, you built your career in media. And that's obviously something really of interest to us personally, working or starting a media company, but also because I feel that media has obviously, it affects the conversation in such a deep way and the way that, that people approach issues. So, I mean, just to start with, what do you think the media got wrong when covering Trump in 2016? (laughs) And are we still making those same mistakes? And what can we, even just the two of us or our company do to make sure that we're covering issues in a way that is not harming the conversation? Well, I think a stunning lack of curiosity, quite frankly. I mean, you know, I applaud the New York Times' big, huge piece they did on on, Obama, uh, on Trump's uh, tax, mm-hmm. uh, non-paying of taxes. But all that was available before. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we could have learned some of that stuff before his election. And instead of which, you know, the media just took him as a lightweight, frothy, fun American Idol candidate and didn't see the enormous appeal of what was beginning and you know interestingly I I felt the first time I realized that Trump was going to win was funny enough at at his convention which most media journalists kind of mocked for being so lame compared to the big glorious Democratic convention but there was an image of Trump walking across the tarmac from his plane with his entire family behind him and all you saw was like women with long blonde hair and short skirts. You saw a big plane with Trump on it. You saw all of this glitz. You saw- Very fascist. It was, yeah, it was a very, very, it was, it. but the image of, of the Hillary Clinton uh, party arriving at the Democratic convention was that of a liberal blue stocking and her family who were like a serious people, eat your spinach, etc. This was gonna prom- this promise what a lot of Americans want. A but lot they'll of pe- never have. A lot of people want, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I want, a lot of money, a great-looking family, a young, gorgeous wife. I mean, it was all there. You could see this was going to be very appealing, and it is. I'm afraid we're going to have a Trump dynasty at this point. I, I agree with you. Yeah, so we've got a dynasty. So does, you know, so does Gaslit Nation. They yeah. also think there's going to be a Trump, a Trump dynasty. dynasty. I was talking to a friend of mine who's just came back from Florida, and I said, well, what are they all saying now? Because I'm always interested in, you know, because her relatives are all Trump supporters, and she said they were all talking about how handsome Barron is. I said, oh Barron, thirteen-year-old Barron, you know, the son of Trump and Melania. She said, yes, they were saying it's so great. There's a real dynasty now, like the Kennedys. Oh no! And I, Jesus Christ! <laughs> and I thought, uh oh, I forgot about Barron. Yeah, you know, he's incredibly handsome. Well, Don Jr. is up next. Yeah, he's already says he wants to run. He Trump admits that his son is too stupid to do anything. So I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't really see much future for Trump Jr. Yeah, but what about the supporters who like love him and the fact that he yes. wears plaid? Sometimes? Yeah, that's true. They love him. They love the whole hunting stuff. Yeah. The like the Ugh. whole the Twitter stuff that he's got now. He's got a very attractive. He said something really yeah. stupid. The yeah, other the day. Pulitzer. <laughs> they they don't give out Pulitzers for fiction. It's like actually they okay. do. John Jr. <laughs> Doesn't. 
doesn't matter. As we know from his father, it won't matter. Do you think that we made, uh, the media made a similar mistake in covering Mueller and that investigation? I think the hysteria around the impending report of Mueller became completely absurd. I mean, absolutely absurd. I mean, it drove me insane. Every time you turned on CNN or MSNBC, there were this frothing, venting uh, stuff about the latest tiny little piece of breadcrumbs coming out of Mueller. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is like disintegrating. You know, I'm British, so of course I'm interested in the whole Brexit story. Mm. But I mean, there wasn't a single story about what was going on with the collapse of British democracy with Brexit. Not a single story about the terrible sort of storm tragedies in in in, uh, in uh, Mauritius and all of these things that are going on ignored, completely ignored. The whole world edited out, and the only thing hour after hour on both the cable channels was just, you know, there's going to be a new breadcrumb coming from this thing and a new little clue. and It was absurd and, and, and could only lead to this kind of embarrassment again, um, which is what has happened. But I think also, in fairness, we have not seen the Mueller report yet. Yeah. You know, right. and what scares me now is I think it's been brilliantly handled again by, by the Trump Mm-hmm. you know, propagandists because they, they made sure that the two big things that everybody cared about and more indictments coming and collusion. They got those out first, at which point most of America will stop listening. They'll just, yeah. they'll just say, you know what, what a big load of nothing and go back to it. Then weeks later, you're going to have drib, drib, drib of awful stuff that was in that report. But Trump will just make announcements every time like I'm going to be pulling Zarated. out, you know, pulling out uh, uh, funding for, 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 for three uh, Latin American countries mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, he, he will always find a way, uh, you know, pretty much he'll invade Venezuela. I mean, anything to distract attention. And it works. Yeah, mm-hmm. it just works. Is there a chance that part of the reason that the media covers these things in a certain way is because the media industry is not doing so well and that this is really what earns them profits and gets them clicks. I mean, just knowing from, from my own perspective of running a media company, you, you present what will what will perform the best. And well, that's I think not that's necessarily right. the most. I think it's true. I mean, I don't think it's what I'd, I, I wouldn't say that for many of the, uh, the media companies, it's a, we're going to do this because of this. But I think, you know, you're self-censored in what you run. Because if, you know, you keep running pieces that are really smart, interesting investigative pieces that don't get any pickup, and that each time you write about Trump, you get a massive burst. I mean, the fact is, people are driven by success. And, right. and individual writers, individual editors, it all starts to aggregate into, this is the Trump bump we need. And it is a Trump bump, as we've seen in the New York Times, Washington Post, every media company has seen a huge uh, increase during the Trump era from the Trump bump. Yeah, I mean, we started the Betches Up, which is our news and politics division, I'm telling you, not the audience who knows. But <laughs> but we started this pretty much alongside the 2016 election. We started it actually before the 2015 primary, but it really took, you saw that people were so much more interested once he was the president because suddenly they felt threatened. And there was also a lot of, there's also a lot of sensationalist stories. Like when he tweets Kofefe, that's like, what's going mm-hmm. on the president just tweeted not a word so i mean i think that it <laughs> forgot about that that was yeah. one of that was one of the most joyful pieces of nonsense in the whole right and so that that is what attracts people but but i i agree it's not necessarily healthy in turn or or the most the best way to gain knowledge so if you were in our position and you wanted to do the right by our audience, how would you handle that balance between serious news and news that is not really important, but yeah. 
Well, I think, I think you know, you need to have uh, people who are informed on. I mean, I, I, I actually think just sort of venting isn't enough. And I don't think, by the way, the answer is to say, so now we're going to have somebody from the Trump side who'll come on and vent. That is such a cop-out. You know, when, when CNN kind of says, well, we're going to have this right-wing person who you know, doesn't... It's Get not, Rick Santorum off of CNN. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have anything to offer either. It's like, I want to hear from people who do real reporting. It, it licks everything, you know? I mean, having actually a genuine piece of news is terribly interesting. And it usually comes from people who are just out there at really reporting. And, you know, if you can't afford your own TV or media outlet to go off and do the reporting for the outlet, which obviously is the most uh, optimum solution, which very few people have the budget to do, then at least give exposure to the people who actually do have something to bring to the table, which means more reporters who are actually breaking information that's new and fewer sort of spewers of just, you know, complete and utter warmed over sound bites from you know yesterday's blog right so where do you get your news now well i'm a complete uh voracious vulture i mean obviously i i read a whole bunch of different twitter feeds first and then i go to my new york times my washington post uh my london guardian my um bbc i'll look at uh foreign outlets too i I love reading uh, the indian express i mean i am reuters you know i'm 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 reading a lot of everything uh as well of course as the individual uh columnists who i follow who i really love right who do who are some of your favorites well, I like um, uh, Joshua Mika Marshall. I like uh, some writers on the, the New Republic blog. I, I read a lot. Um, I like columnists. Actually, I like Brett Stevens, which I know a lot of people don't, but I, I think he's, uh, you know, he's I like sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I like him for that reason. I, I never quite know what he's going to say, which I, which I like very much indeed. Um, there are writers in England that I follow, like Carol Cadwallader, who is an incredible investigative journalist. We're going to have her on at Women in the World this year. Uh, she broke the Cambridge Analytical uh, Analytica story, and she's always worth following. Cara Swisher, I will follow relentlessly. I love Cara Swisher. So, yeah, there's a lot of very interesting names out there. So you just brought up, brought up Car- Carol Cadwallader, and she's kind of like the Brexit. She's the kind of like the Mueller of Britain apparently (laughs) (laughs) but she's a journalist so Mm -hmm. she doesn't have any governmental power to issue subpoenas or anything but Brexit is really coming to a head at this moment do you have I don't think our audience is as attuned to Brexit as a British audience would be but do you have any sort of we'd love to hear your thoughts on where that's going now that they well, voted it you down know what? Again. What is so scandalous about Brexit is it really began as a as a political gambit from the Tory Prime Minister David Cameron, who was agitated about his own very right wing, mm-hmm. uh, who was sort of like his Tea Party, who kept on agitating about getting out of Europe, and he really he really decided to do the referendum to kind of put that side of the party to rest, so that he could move on with a more sort of secure, uh, a sort of coherent party. So he launched this referendum and then, frankly, did a very lame job of it. And lo and behold, you know, Brexit won, which Mm -hmm. was on nobody's mind, Uh, particularly, by the way, the people who had been espousing Brexit, because Boris Johnson, who was the deeply disreputable, you know, Etonian, upper class, tough idiot who was braying to have Brexit, he didn't want to win either. He wanted to just, again, get his creds going with the right wing of his own party so that he could then be a leadership candidate, you know, having got the credentials of being pro-Brexit. So 
he was stunned to win as well. So, and, and you you go from there into the chaos of now because after lots of feuding at the top, Theresa May was the she never won an election that mm-hmm. time. She she uh, you know she she got the job by default. Would never have been considered the leader, but she got it and all power to her. At least she was a sensible person. Mm-hmm. And then we proceed into this next two years of negotiation to get terms which anybody can agree on, which nobody can. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bit like the Republicans with their health care uh, nonsense when they keep saying we're going to have a great new plan. They've never had a plan. I mean, after eight years of talking about a new health care plan that wasn't Obamacare, disgracefully, they had no plan ready. And it was the same with Brexit. All of these people in the Tory party had been banging on about Brexit. Not a one of them had a coherent plan of how you were going to extricate Britain, after all of these decades, you know, tied to Europe from this union, which was now intertwined with tariffs and customs and all of these duties and business deals. And it's just intricate beyond yeah. belief. You know, I mean, imagine, just yeah. think about it. You can't now, if you have just, just a small thing, but like if you are, for instance, you know, a TV show, you can no longer just sell your uh, rights to the TV show to Europe. You now have to negotiate separate copyright deals with France, Germany, Italy, Spain. I mean, can you imagine the work involved in that, the slowness involved in that, and therefore the expense involved in that? You're going to have to have a whole new rights and legal department Mm -hmm. suddenly doing all this stuff. So just small things like that are just, you start thinking about it, it's completely insane. To what extent do you think that Brexit and Trump being elected are kind of all one wave historically? They feel very... Well, I think together to uh, there's no doubt that the Brexit people had, like the Rep- Trump vote, had every reason to be angry because the Tory government, frankly, had shredded, uh, you know, their social services over the preceding five years, just shredded them. Uh, you know, all kinds of public funding had been cut, health care funding cut, all of this stuff cut, cut, cut. And they felt also at the same time overwhelmed by a large immigration wave that had been uh, started really under Tony Blair's government, where in fact the numbers that that came in were far more than anybody had expected or computed. And so they felt overwhelmed. They felt that everybody, that foreigners were were taking away their their free education, you know, going into schools, taking the places in schools, taking their places in the uh, healthcare lines. And they had every reason to feel extremely angry about it. But both Trump voters and uh, Brexit voters were also very much influenced by false information. I mean, this yeah. is where the disinformation campaigns uh, spread you know, on social media have been so incredibly damaging. I mean, Brexit, one of the main reasons that people voted for Brexit, there were two things actually, and I heard it again and again, and it, was, it wasn't even on buses. It was like the money that comes, that comes out of the European Union is going to go towards British medical uh, health service, number one. That was never true. It's all a complete lie. Secondly, we're going to have a wave of Turks coming. I mean, the Turks were never even going to be part of the European Union. But like, time and again, you talk to people who could say, well, I voted for Brexit because of that. You know, I, we needed to have more funds put towards the National Health Service from the Europe. And there were all of these Turks coming. It's just lies. True, yeah. Just, just, um, just like pure the caravan. Lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the caravan. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like these lies that are very potent and get into people's heads. So a lot of people just voted for Brexit on the basis of lies. Do you think that they will, the Britain will leave the EU without a deal? I think it's a strong possibility. Yeah. What, what, are, what are they going to do? Like, how are they going to go about 
any sort of business importing? Well, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a drastic mess if that happens. I mean, the very best that can happen is that there's sort of a customs union, which means that actually Britain has no, <laughs> it's ironic, left the European Union to have absolutely no control over its own terms, actually, because mm. Europe are just saying, they were always crazy. I mean, the, the, the Brexit people really thought that they could leave the club and still swim in the pool. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, what club allows you to do that, right? You you, you opted out. <laughs> yeah. And now you know you don't want to pay your dues anymore. Well, you're not going to also be able to use the tennis court. You know? Yeah. Right. It's just ridiculous. Right. And that's what they keep arguing. It's like, well, give us this, give us this. And it's like, you're be saying, no, because if we do that for you, then... France is going to want it. Italy's going to want it. Spain's going to want it. You yeah. Know? I mean, makes sense from, yeah. from their perspective, yeah, of course. it does. Uh, so I'm just switching gears a little bit. So you were the former editor at The New Yorker, and you were saying that you left it because you wanted, you saw it more than just a magazine, mm-hmm. and you wanted it to become like a radio show, maybe yeah. a production house, among right. other things. Yes. Media really has gone that way. Yeah. Um, so you had the foresight to see that. What do you think... What can we expect for the future for media? Like, what do you think we should be looking for now in age of social media as well? Well, I do. I do think that quality is going to become the ultimate luxury and the ultimate price tag. And and there has to be. I mean, at the New Yorker, I I felt strongly that people would pay a lot, lot more for subscriptions than they were. And at the time, Condé Nast wouldn't put them up because there was a philosophy of cheap subscriptions. But I was proved to be right that now, finally, after after like fifteen years after I left, they put mm-hmm. the subscription price high. And indeed, it, people would absolutely pay for it, just as they would for an HBO. So I think the subscription model is the only, only way to go. And the only way to get people to pay for those subscriptions is by giving them quality. It is, a, it is an amazing thing that people will actually will pay for quality and they won't pay for something that's dross. Now, one of the problems is, is that some of these smaller uh, you know, local uh, journalism has a real problem because, uh, you know, the, there isn't the, the, the funds in their customers to, to, to pay high. But on the other hand, there has to be some kind of education to pay something because they used to pay it at the newsstand. And, and there was this contract perpetrated by uh, the launching social media platforms that somehow it all should be free. But, you know, Spotify figured that out and, yeah. and, and you know, there, it has to be figured out for media. And I, and I think it, it will be finally after a lot of blood on the floor. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems like that's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> NPR, The New York Times. Yes. Yeah. And those are, all, those are also free unless you're on Patreon. So, um, yeah. Good. So just to finish up, we wanted you to tell us a little bit about the Women in the World Summit and what to expect from it and how can people follow it or attend if they're if possible well thank you for that opportunity that women in the world is what i've been doing for the last you know five or six years i founded it actually 10 years ago um it is an incredible convening of powerful interesting um exciting women from all over the world some of whom you've heard of and who are very famous uh, and others who many of them who are not but who you find just as exciting when you come this year, we have a fantastic lineup because we have Oprah on opening night, Brie Larson. We have Stacey Abrams, Priyanka Chopra, Susan Rice, Anna Wintour. So we have an incredible uh, tentpole, uh, powerful women coming to the summit to be in the summit. But then we also have incredibly moving stories, which 
really are, I think, are going to be the showstoppers in the end, such as the two uh, Ugandan women who uh, are gay in a place which where being homosexual is actually illegal and where, for instance, you know, you're evicted from your apartment if somebody discovers that you are uh, gay or uh, LGBTQ. And so we have these two women who have been lovers for a long time in from Uganda who have managed to keep together despite all the harassment. And uh, they're going to be telling their stories sort of in shadow because they don't want their faces known to the authorities. But I think it's going to be extraordinarily moving. Um, and then we also have an amazing uh, uh, a woman who is, uh, whose sisters uh, in, in China have been all detained uh, <coughs> because they're Uyghur Muslims. And many people don't know that in China right now, the crackdown on the Uyghur Muslims has become very, very scary. I mean, they're being rounded up. They're being put into supposed re-education camps. It's spreading and getting worse. People just are disappeared, and you find that your relative is gone. The woman we have on our stage is going to be talking about that, and I think that'll be really incredible. So we have, you know, and then we have an incredible, some incredible Saudi uh, uh, panel too, where we have um, a remarkable uh, young woman whose sister right now is in uh, captivity in Saudi for being a, a woman's rights activist and. Uh, I mean, dissidents in Saudi, despite all of their uh, fake PR about being a quote re in a reform mode, um, are being lashed and imprisoned uh, in the most horrific way. So we try to give, you know, oxygen to those kind of ideas as well. Yeah, I think it is. It, it is due. Saudi Arabia is due for a rebrand sure from our is. side. Mm -hmm. It's Absolutely. really just. I don't understand this idea that they're somehow more progressive but they're not um that's awesome so where can where can people find out more information well they can watch it live streaming on uh, womenintheworld.com uh they can um read about it on womenintheworld.com uh mm. but the live stream is where they'll be able to watch it uh, during the during the event and it's on starts the evening of april the 10th at lincoln center it goes through uh, April the 12th. There are still just a few tickets left for those who wish to come live to see it. Not many, but uh, there are still some. And, uh, you know, we're just, it's our 10th anniversary now. Mm -hmm. So we're extraordinarily excited. And we also feel, frankly, that the mission has met the moment. You know, mm -hmm. that yes. we, we, we started this, I gave birth to it in 2009 in a tiny theater. Now, 10 years on, the issues that we talked about then are so much mm -hmm. at the forefront now that this is a real celebration yeah. in a sense of the fact that the mission has landed and this is a very exciting time to be doing Women in the World. Yeah. I was there last year. I loved it so oh, much. Oh my God. Yeah. Love, you know, I feel such joy when a man tells me <laughs> that he was there. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing because, you know, you come for these, the big names like right. Sally Yates and yeah. obviously Secretary Clinton. But then, you know, you're just sitting through all these other stories that I would never have known about. It was That's what wonderful. I like to hear. That's what yeah. I love to hear in the interval when I go mm -hmm. out. People say, oh, my God, I never knew that was happening in South Carolina. Yeah. I never knew that was happening in, in Dubai. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's 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 very gratifying. So grab your tickets. I think I need to grab a ticket. It's I think you do. It's only five blocks from my apartment. <laughs> Definitely. So it's quite Be there. convenient. And it's on my birthday. So oh, my you God. Oh, You're present. in. You're in. <laughs> I, I think that I yeah. know somebody influential who could help you get a ticket to me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just have one last question. And this is really a personal interest of mine. And you were friends with her, with Princess Diana. Do you? I read a book about her, the Diana I Chronicles. I read it. <laughs> I, I've read so many books about Princess Diana and her death and everything. So I've I've read it. Um, do you think that there was any foul play involved in her death? 
I do not, actually. Okay. I think it was a perfect storm of awful accidents. I'm pretty sure it could not have been done as an assassination, only because her own plans that night were so erratic and unsure, and she took routes to, to you know, down that um, Alma Tunnel in Paris and so on that was not on her agenda. I cannot see how it could have been planned. Mm. I mean, who knows? Maybe 10 years from now we'll find out that something did happen untoward. I mean... Uh, I have rethought it a bit recently when I see so much skullduggery and uh, the question then is, could her phone have been hacked, I suppose, and followed? I don't think it did happen that way, but, uh, I mean, what a tragedy to the whole world. And how beautiful it is to see, you know, Harry, her beloved Harry uh, and her beloved William. But, you know, I think she would have been particularly pleased about Harry marrying Meghan Markle because she was so inclusive herself. You know, yes. she opened the door to so many and AIDS victims, biracial people, you know, LGBTQ people, black and, and Indian and all of the people that she embraced. And so for her son to marry a biracial girl, uh, I think would have been very thrilling to her actually. Yeah, I thought that at the time, actually. I, re I remember I was very, one of my really earliest memories was doing a book report on Princess Diana after she had passed away. And just reading about how she was one of the first people to go speak to HIV patients she and was. lepers. And it's really amazing. She so. was. And actually, you know, the, the, the crowd that came out for her, her after her death was such a different face of Britain. That's what everybody realized, that she'd actually changed her own country by somehow the stiff upper lip had, had melted, you know. And, and yeah. the country looked and felt very different and has done ever since. That's great. Love her. So Thank this you. has been... A dream of an interview. <laughs> thank you. I've enjoyed <laughs> it. It's so fun talking to you. Thank you. Okay, that thank really you. means a lot. It does. I'm going to live on that all day. Yeah, so make sure you listen to the podcast TBD with Tina Brown and check out Women in the World Summit. Go to womenintheworld.com to scoop up those last few times. I love my podcast, everybody. So mm. please, please tune in. Rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. <laughs> so this has been the Betches Sub Podcast. Until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Fishbein. I'm Brian Russell Smith. And thanks for listening. Bye. Batches.